Welcome to episode 17 of the Camerosity Podcast, the first ever open source film photography podcast. We are back at a regular time recording late Monday evening from most of the United States. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and from Sydney, Australia, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. Sounds like you're a bit under the weather there, Theo. How are you feeling? Oh, not, not too, too bad. Uh, thanks, Mike. Battling COVID at the moment, so um, a little bit uh, a little bit under the weather, and um, a little bit. Uh, I'd advise you guys to stay away from your headphones a little bit. Uh, make sure we keep the, the six feet. Okay, all right. The dairy. Stay, stay six feet away from the, from the microphone. Got it. All right, thanks for the warning. From Yellow Springs, Ohio, Mr. Paul Rival. How are things there in the east, eastern Midwest United States, Paul? We're cool. We're cool. Actually, we're cool. But we're, everything is good. Yeah, it's cold here, too. <laughs> and finally, from Gainesville, Florida, where his front yard is on fire, Mr. Anthony Rue. Are you safe from the flames, Anthony? We're safe from the flames, but that smoke is getting very obnoxious. I, we were hoping to get a little bit of a cold front with some rain to tamp down all the smokes. It's still smoldering, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll get by. So why was it on fire in the first place? Um, I live on the edge of a 50,000 acre wildlife preserve and they do controlled burns uh, to keep it from becoming a fire hazard. And wow. so the, the, the fire crews came through and, and burned it right up to the edge of my driveway, uh, which was a bit of uh, not expected yeah. to, to walk out and have a 10 foot wall of fire uh, just you know a couple of meters away from my car. That sounds scary. Well, I'm glad you're safe and I'm glad Theo's feeling yeah. better and Paul's a-okay. Can you move my zoom window a few more feet away from Theo's? Oh, okay. I'm not sure what the what the CDC recommendation is, but we're adjacent, and uh, I'm a little concerned. Yeah, you're right above him on my screen. We got the Brady Bunch going here. Uh, <laughs> we we have a couple special uh, special guests performing the role of Alice the maid is Mr. Dan Houseman. Hey, da- hey, Dan. <laughs> He's in the middle. A repeat listener and and joiner is Mark Faulkner. Hey, Mark. Hey, how's it going? All right, and then finally, Mr. Hong Lee. How you doing, Hong? Pretty good. How are you? Hong has purchased two lenses off of us so far, so uh, we're going to keep trying to find new things to sell him. <laughs> ah, so that's why you wanted me. Yeah, Actually. yeah. So what did you what did you buy and who from? So from you, I bought a uh, Zeiss Optin Sonar, 15mm um, at 1.5 in the contacts RF now. And from Paul, I bought a uh, pre-AI 24mm f2.8 decor. So, and you guys made me buy a, Ni- a Nikon F, you bastards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're just, just doing our part here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we talked last week about well, which is the best, the Nikon F, F2, or F3, and we came to the conclusion that FM2. <laughs> no, we didn't. We didn't? Oh, I thought we did. <laughs> we did not come to that conclusion. <laughs> it's, it's, it's still a contentious topic. Uh, one thing we did talk about, though, is uh, cameras that we hated. Uh, I threw out there the Konica AI Borg. Um, we, we, one of the possibilities was the N70. Uh, but a question that we were kind of tossing around the green room earlier uh, that I'd like to get some of your guys' thoughts on is what is the worst camera you've ever used that has a great lens? Anyone want to want to throw their, their hat in the ring there? Well, if you – I mean, it would be – it's too easy to, to list a Russian camera. Okay. Because if you had 20 cameras, they would all be Russian. But the <laughs> – Helios 44 lens uh, in M39 mount, which was made for the Zenit, the Zenit S, and the Crystal, is a terrific lens. And the cameras were all pretty much horrible. I actually have two of these because I reversed the front element on one 
and I reversed the rear element on the other one. Okay. Uh, they only focus to like six feet or less, but the results from it are, are fantastic. Doesn't it amplify like the swirly bokeh effect? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it just goes completely nuts. Nice. It, uh, it's a zoom type effect with the swirly bokeh, uh, bokeh, and, and uh, just generally a goofy look. Yeah. But the, the cameras they were on, the, the thing is, it's M39. It was made for an SLR camera. So in order to make it work on anything, you have to step it from 39 to 42 and then use a 42 millimeter adapter uh, into a digital mirrorless camera. Now, can you explain to anyone who doesn't understand why can't you use an M39 Zenit lens on like a Leica or something like that? Well, because it's the mirror, bo- because of the flange distance is different on it. It's, it's designed to fit uh, an SLR camera, which would be much longer, much greater distance to the film plane than it would be on a Leica. So if you just use a Leica 39 adapter, uh, it simply won't focus. Okay. But if you step it to 42 and then put it on a 42 adapter, you're adding another almost three quarters of an inch or maybe even more than that uh, under the distance, onto the flange distance. It's interesting because I, I literally was shooting this today. I have it loaded with film. I have a Chinese Great Wall DF3. Um, and this, it's a, like a 6x6 SLR, very similar to the KW Pilot. But what's neat about it is it uses the M39 screw mount. So oh. it's got the exact same threads as a Leica lens you know, or a Nikkor. I mean, I've actually mounted. I don't have one within arm's reach. But you can actually mount a rangefinder lens to this. And it technically works, but you only get focus of about like three inches. It turns uh-huh. it into like a macro six by six SLR. So if you and because it's an SLR, at least you can still focus. You know, I bet one of these Helios forty fours would work on that. Yeah, camera. I was thinking that that would be kind of a neat experiment because the the Great Wall. I'll shot pictures of it on the Instagram page. Is a lot thicker than a rangefinder, of course. So. With the lens screwed on, it's much further away from the film plane than if I was using a, a, a rangefinder. So I'd be willing to bet that one of those Zenit lenses would um, be probably probably. I'm sure it's still not going to be perfect, but I bet it'll be a lot closer. Well, what's the focal length on that lens? Uh, 90 millimeter. Okay. Okay. So it's a 90 millimeter f uh, 3.5, and I, I did mount a Nikkor five. Or, I'm sorry, 50. F2 on it, and like I said, I was only able to focus four inches from the film plane, so that's like one inch from the front of the lens. And what was the vignetting like? Extreme. Yeah, it's it, it was a fun experiment, but it wasn't practical. You know, I mean, usually when you get to do macro, um, it's not typically on medium format, so I mean, unless you're doing like uh, some kind of a Mia with like a double extension or something, but uh, it's kind of a fun, fun little little thing to play with. So what's the difference in the flange distance then? Between that and a normal M39, like a... A Leica flange distance is, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to get this wrong, it's like 21 millimeters, 27 millimeters from the from the flange to the focal plane. On an, on an SLR, it's more like 30-something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you just if, if vision a, a Leica rangefinder in front of your head, think of the distance from the lens mount to where the film yeah. is. It's about an inch. Well, and then picture a medium format SLR from where the lens mount is to where the film would be, and that's a lot farther than an inch. So the, even when the lens is screwed onto the body, it's much further away from where the film is. So by, it, it's, it's, it's the same effect as if you had like a macro tube or some kind of bellows attachment where you're pushing the lens away from the film plane allows you to focus closer. 
Like I would literally have to take the lens and put it inside the camera to get it to the correct distance if I was using a normal rangefinder lens. And that's the same thing as what Paul was talking about with the Zenit SLRs, is that the first version of the Zenit, they uh, used the Leica thread mount, mount, but because the lens had to account for the mirror box, it pushes it further away than in a rangefinder. Well, Mike, if I can get back to my choice for yeah. great lens, horrible, terrible, crappy camera. It's not really horrible, terrible, crappy, but as somebody who is absolutely obsessed with the Kodak Metalist, I thought that I was obsessed with the Kodak Chevron, which if you've never seen it, looks like a, a, a Signet 35 on steroids. Yeah. Um, so the idea was it was the successor to the Metalist, but boy, it's talk about a, a camera designed by committee, including some accountant trying to cut corners. Ah, there's a, there's a Chevron right there. Uh, beautiful Ektar lens, weird as hell camera with all sorts of things, like a weird little flimsy push knob that you have to push to be able to advance the film and the film advance has various amounts of times you have to pump it so it's not like a double stroke sometimes it's a double stroke sometimes it's a triple stroke sometimes it's a four stroke and the whole thing just feels flimsy and and hard to handle and it just feels like it's going to fall apart it's a beautiful camera it looks like the chrysler building right uh but the, it's just it, it's just kind of an awkward it's big in your hands in a, in a weird way where the, the metalist is just a beast uh at least you know you have this you get this one feeling for working with the metalist you know with with the chevron it just feels like somebody hit a, a signet with uh, you know some sort of enlarging ray and and just and, and just increase the dimensions without really thinking about whether that made for good ergonomics and i was lucky enough that mike novak loaned me one for about a year i probably ran 20 rolls of film through it but it was one of those cameras that, that when I shipped it back, I've never once looked at a listing for a Chevron again, because as beautiful as that camera is, I will never be looking forward to shooting one again. But the lens is the Ektar lens. Right. Beautiful lens. Incredible results out of it. Now, uh, it's just, not the exact same Ektar as on the Metalist, even though they do use the same name. The focal length is different, and I believe it's a four element versus a five. Because the focal, I mean, it's it's a different lens, but it's it is still, a different lens. Yeah, it's still very very good. But uh, having shot both the Chevron and the Metalist, I definitely will agree with you that the Metalist is definitely quirky. It's definitely heavy. It's definitely not for everybody. But most anybody I know who has truly given the Metalist a shot ends up liking it. And I could honestly say that that's not true about the Chevron. <laughs> uh, that's not to say it's a bad camera because it's not. Yeah. They're, they're, it yeah. is very capable. It is well built, um, at least from that era. But yeah, I have to agree with you that it, the lens on that is definitely better than the camera is. Dan, you've got one. Do you, do you shoot yours? Uh, I do, have not. I think I shot one like 20 years ago and then I sold it. And then uh, Paul very graciously uh got me one out of a mutual friend's estate but i have not uh, it's been languishing here on the shelf i haven't shot it yet anthony mike so when did that the medalist the chevron what when did that come when did those come out approximately well the medalist was in development before the outbreak of world war ii so uh i've seen drawings and 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 walter dorwin teague who came up with the design was actually working on another camera that was shelved that became the medalist and I believe that was 38, 39. And then by 40, they were into production with the Metalist One. 
but almost immediately, if Mike can correct me on this, but uh, it uh, went under contract to the U.S. military for the entirety of, of World War uh, II. Uh, the entire production went for military distribution. That's correct. Yep. So it was the uh, uh, there's a oh, that's a giant Chevron. Only slightly larger than the. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't that on gilligan's island or something uh, i think it was land of the giants okay and then it ended up in some theme park in california and then yeah then, then it was like official issue on the the navy so right every aircraft carrier in the pacific had uh, a medalist on board uh with a, with a cameraman and that's why they had the the black anodized uh helicoid on the lens was to be salt water resistant salt spray resistant and then after world war ii it became a consumer product and they did some tweaks and released it as the Metalist two, or the Metalist Two, which I believe ran until '54. Yeah, it was definitely early '50s. I don't know if it was quite '54, but um, yeah, it, it pretty much was Kodak's top of the line camera from that era. And you know, realizing that it was just unattainable for most people, because I mean, it cost. I, I want to say, Dan, you might know better than I do. Wasn't it close to four hundred dollars new? I don't, I don't remember that, Back but it then, yeah, wasn't cheap. <laughs> which, you know, with inflation is, is like 5000 today. And, you know, Kodak had a narrow window from about 46 to maybe 49-ish when very little output was coming from Japan, or I'm sorry, Germany. And the Japanese market hadn't really, you know, matured yet. So, you know, the Americans like Ansco with the automatic reflex 3.5 TLR, uh, you know, a few other American companies kind of had the... The, the room to themselves, so to speak, to release these high-end American-made cameras that were really, really good. You know, the Cardin was an example of that, where people couldn't get cameras from Germany. Well, after a couple years, they the, the they were able to start getting the real thing again, so it made it really difficult for the Americans to keep selling those cameras. So so the the Metalist and the Chevron, were those quote-unquote professional cameras? Yeah. Or, okay, I see. Because like Anthony said, the Metalist was designed for military use. Kodak was very aware of the effect the war was going to have on getting cameras and photography stuff here. You know, the, I mentioned the Cardin. You know, I won't reiterate too much of it here. But, you know, Dan, you loaned me your book on Peter Cardin's camera. And I wrote a review on my site telling the whole history about how Ernst Lights of New York was tasked by the U.S. government to make an American Leica, and they couldn't do it. So they basically had to ask this other American businessman to come up with a way of building a Leica here. Well, Kodak was doing a lot of the same stuff, too. And on my site, um, Hong, an article I recommend you search for is called Kodak Prototypes of the 1930s. Hmm. Um I found this pamphlet called Major Developments in New Apparatus that I got a high-resolution scan from um, by Charlie, the Kodak collector. And it shows these hand-drawn, in some cases, photographs of prototypes that Kodak was working on. Some of the prototypes actually did get made. Like, for example, the Super Kodak 35 became the Ektra. Um, it shows the rangefinder version of the Kodak 35. There's like a Bantam. But there's a couple really crazy cameras that Kodak was working on that never got developed. There's two different variations of a prototype of the Metalist. One of them used 35mm film, like it was a much smaller version. So could you imagine, Anthony, a Metalist, but downsized for 35mm? 
That's my dream camera. Yeah, and there's I mean there's actually a picture of it so you can kind of see that somewhere on this planet at some point in time one did get made. Now, whether it got melted down into alloy, you know, or just destroyed somewhere is highly likely. Um, but you know that you just never know uh, what happened to some of these prototypes. But kind of getting off topic here. But my favorite prototype is something they never even gave it a name. It was the six by six reflex Kodak. This was a TLR. It has interchangeable lenses, so it's kind of like you know, like Mamiya had the interchangeable lenses. But you could swap out both front elements. It has a rangefinder on it. It's got a split image rangefinder inside of a ground glass waist level. It had a focal plane shutter. So think about it, a focal plane shutter and a TLR. Inter I said interchangeable lens mount. It would have had a meter. There was a meter uh, option for it. Like, so a selenium cell meter probably from, what was that, the Super 620. I mean, it was just crazy. So definitely check out this article and it shows some of those early prototypes like the Metalist that Kodak was working on at the time that was just just completely off the wall. And and I think they were doing this just because no one else could make cameras like that. So they were just sort of throwing a whole bunch of stuff at the wall to see what would stick. So Mike, the, the metalist version of that Ektar, I may be confused, but isn't that a Heliar formula? It's a five element for sure. I don't know if it's a Heliar though. I've never found out for sure, but I am a hundred percent positive that the five element Ektar on the metalist is not the same I mean, yeah. it's, it's the focal length is different. So right there, yeah, it yeah. pretty much kills it. But it's not like it's the, the Chevron has a five element lens. It is definitely a four element. If I had to guess, probably a Tessar style. Yeah. We've got Mark. Mark Peterson has joined us. Hey, Mark. Hello. I'm back. Welcome to the show, Mark. You're back. Yes. Theo, do you have a uh, worst uh, camera, best lens? Yeah, I do. I, um, I once went to a, um, a camera market that they have here three times a year in Sydney. Uh, which was what they did before the pandemic. And I came across this uh, 5.8 centimeter Biotar uh, F2 M40 mount just sitting there on a table. No covers, no nothing, just sitting there. And I, I asked the guy, what, what's, what's this? What, yeah, what mount is it? He goes, oh, I think it's L39, but not sure. Uh, I want to buy a sandwich. So you can have it for a couple of bucks. So I said, two bucks, here we go. It's Carl's eyes, you can't go wrong. Went home, looked it up, and this thing's got 17 blades, absolutely fantastic, which then, you know, and it was in not a bad shape. It needed to clean up, I sent him for service, another $80, great. Uh, I then went on the hunt for an M40 mount camera because, you know, you can't have the lens and not have the proper mount for it. And I got a Practiflex. Yeah. And to say my experience of shooting the Practiflex was abysmal is actually giving it an optimistic view. This thing is horrible <laughs> to use. <laughs> I'll grant you, it's it's a time and place when it was built and, and so on. But the quality of actually, yeah, the tin they used to put it together and all that sort of stuff and and the screen and the mirror, yeah, had had almost dissolved itself and it's just just it was just yeah. horrible to use. Practi flexes haven't seemed to age well. Um I don't think they were that bad of a camera when they started. However, I don't know that anybody collects them and they're, they're very few are probably taking really good care of and yeah. certainly nobody's going to spend the money to restore which is what is effectively a primitive practica because it's really all yeah. it is with a lens mount that like you said it's M40. So it doesn't even use the later ones. So it's definitely a dead end camera. And, and you're right; they they are very rudimentary. But what you said it was a Tessar 
was a biotar. No, biotar. A biotar. Biotar. Five point eight. Wow. Centimeter. Yeah, yeah, that's rare. I so. well, seventeen blades. That, that's worth trying to adapt to something. Oh, I have. I've adapted that to my digital, and it is okay. a beautiful lens. Yeah. So it's, it's like, yeah, the, the gold the gold standard in lens with the the absolute rubbish standard in camera. So how do you adapt a forty millimeter screw to digital? Like, what do you use? I actually found a place on eBay, um, and he manufactures the the actual adapters. And I'm okay. going to manufacture two for me, one for M40 to like a thread, so LTM, and one to um, M40 to micro four thirds. Okay, so all custom. Which is the, the digital camera I use at the moment um, for, for adapting. But to, uh, eventually if I buy a Sony or a Nikon yeah. uh, Z or something, I'll, I'll get it adapted to that. But he actually manufactures these and they're actually quite good. He they're not actual 3D printed. They're actually metal carved, carved out of metal. Do you remember who the guy's name was? I don't have it offhand, but I can right. include it in the show notes. Did he make did he make adapters for cameras also? There's a guy named Ramir. Rare adapter. That sounds very familiar. Yeah, Ramir. Yeah, yeah he yeah. he made me one for a uh, I can't remember what it was, but it was some uh, an Altix. I wanted to use I had a Tessar from an Altix. So he made me an Altix adapter, and it had to have a a set screw and an adjustment on it because it wouldn't focus to infinity. It was so primitively made, the lens was, that it wouldn't focus to infinity without uh, moving the lens in and out on the adapter. <laughs> right. Um, but, yeah, this this um, fits nicely on my Leica 3, and uh, also on my Micro Four Thirds. Though on the Micro Four Thirds, it becomes a, a very beautiful portrait lens because obviously the, the, the focal length gets doubled on that. So for Mark Peterson, just because you joined um, after we started talking, the question we're throwing around the room is, what's an example of a camera with a great lens, but the camera is just miserable to use? Do you have any uh, any ideas of great lens, bad camera? Not yet, but I don't have that many. In, <laughs> I don't have that many. I've only been doing it for nine, ten months, so I haven't collected. I'm sure Paul can sell you something. There will be some candidates for You're into M42, as I recall. You know, there there will be some screw mount cameras that are pretty miserable to use. If you just just keep at it. You'll find them. So I have I have my suggestion. I I honestly was gonna mention the Retina Reflex three or four, but I I, I didn't want to hurt Anthony's feelings. Um, the, you know the lenses on those are so good, but they're just I I don't enjoy using them. But so I'll go I'll go a different direction here, and my nomination for terrible lens. I'm sorry, great lens, terrible camera is this puppy here. Uh, it's called the Canon AF35ML. It's a point and shoot. Came out around 1980, maybe 81. Looks like a rather rudimentary Canon electronic point and shoot with a pop-up flash. But uh, we'll have a picture of it in the show notes. But if you look at that lens, it's a 40 millimeter f1.9. So someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I do not believe... Anybody else made an F19 lens on an automatic point and shoot camera? And there's probably a really good reason for that because this camera is terrible to use. You know, we all know Canon made great lenses. You know, most likely the optical formula f- of this lens is either identical or at least very similar to the lenses from the Canon at rangefinders. I I can't believe they would have created a brand new lens formula just for this one camera but you know it being fully automatic you have no control over the aperture at all you have to rely on whatever programmed you know whatever the the, the electronics and the metering system in this camera and you don't really ever get to choose one nine 
Uh, I believe reading through the manual, the only time it will ever choose one nine is with like a two second exposure length or something. I've used this thing three times. I've read other people's reviews of the same camera. It it really struggles with autofocus. Um, I don't know why, you know, obviously it's an early point and shoot where the system was just more basic, but I have used other early electronic autofocus cameras, even those made by Canon before, and they did not do as bad of a job as this one does. You know, even I've tried multiple versions of this camera. At one point I had three of them because I really, really wanted to like it. I thought it would be cool to have a fast point and shoot with a good lens and, uh, yeah, I, I, I truly believe this is a great lens on what I think is one of the worst implementations of, of a camera for it. So if you ever are trawling uh, eBay or you know a thrift store and you come across one of these and you see the F19 lens um, and you want to buy it and put it on a shelf to take a look at that beautiful blue lens coating with the red ring around it, by all means, go for it. But don't waste your money on any film for these. Have you seen what they sell for, though? No. I mean, those are... Those are really, I mean, they're like sure shots. That, yeah, it's essentially the Canon sure shot. It's a sure shot. With they're a fast 100, lens. 150 to $175 <sighs> in working order. Every dog has its day. Yeah. I think people yeah. get attracted to that. Because, you know, I mean, I mean, Paul, can you think of another point and shoot with a lens like that? A fast lens no. like that? No. I was trying to remember, you know, I was, it, but the limitation, of course, the, the speed was because the autofocus is so primitive. Yeah. In those. So they really need to shoot it at four or five, six. And those older, um, uh, how old autofocus cameras generally worked is they actually were just zone focus. Well, they were, well, they were the, the Honeywell Visitronic system. Remember those? Yeah. I mean, it, it might have been, that was 1973. Seven. Konica was the first one to use that Honeywell yeah, system. Yeah, well, and then Honeywell had the Visitronics, which was a triangulation system. And they were, I mean, they really had to be at F8 in order to have enough depth of focus right. to, to, to make a sharp image. Right. So essentially, you're, you're combining two opposite technologies that don't work well together. An autofocus system that relies on depth of field to even work and a fast lens. You yeah. know, so yeah. any hope at getting this thing to focus correctly is pretty much out the window. I mean, like, and, and, and it was an 80s point and shoot. There is no manual control over this camera at all. Like, you cannot override the autofocus. Uh, you cannot manually choose um, shutter speed or, or you know, the f-stop. So essentially, you have this pretty lens, this large piece of glass. I don't know what these things sold for new, but I have to imagine they were pricey. Because, you know, people had lens gas even back then. But you, you, it literally cripples the camera. Paul, I have a question for you. Since we're talking autofocus, and it's not something that I know very much about, did anybody try to use sonar besides Polaroid for autofocus? I know Polaroid made sonar, like, adapters for some, like, large format cameras. But did anybody use sonar actually in their cameras? I, I don't, I don't think, think so. so. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, you know, because visually you'd see it. Yeah, I mean, it's very distinct. And I don't remember ever seeing, you know, the receiver, the sender and receiver on any other camera. It just seems like that's such a cool technology. And Polaroid had, you know, so many cool technological breakthroughs that that was one that was just like an absolute dead end. Well, until you try to shoot through glass or, or <laughs> right. uh, uh, smoke or a window yeah. or not, not a window, but a curtain. The only thing it does well is it works in complete darkness. So if you have a flash on the camera, you could be in pitch black and it will be able, because sonar is basically audio. 
So it it could hear an object, let's say, you know, 10 feet away. And assuming you have the flash, it would then fire the flash and the shutter at the same time. And you'd have a properly uh, focused image. But like Paul said, you have even uh, uh, some smoke or haze or even a vertical line in it. And it probably won't be able to see it. Well, then the the manufacturers came out with the IR system to help the autofocus. Yeah. And that, that was a game changer because it, it, uh, it really made them a lot more accurate. But the thing about autofocus is, and I, I, I've always contended this, but I've never been able to prove it. Autofocus cameras are not infinitely variable. No. They, they autofocus in zones. So, you know, you're, you, you think you're going to get it. Not the SLRs, of course, but the point and shoot autofocus. Correct. They may only have five or six zones. Mm-hmm. And that was later. The early ones that were almost always three. Yeah, three zones in the area. Yeah, so I mean, it's fine in bright sunlight where you could the lens can stop down to f11, f16. It's going to get it close enough. But if you're trying to shoot in low light because you bought this fancy point and shoot with an f19 lens, it's just not going to work. No. So, so let me ask this question about autofocus then. So Polaroid's kind of like an outlier with their sonar-based system. My understanding is that at least in that time period, like 70s, 80s, 80s, that the autofocus worked based on the uh, like contrast detection, is, is that is that right? As the as it gets more in focus, the contrast becomes more definite, and that's how it measures whether or not something's in focus or not. Yeah, it had to have it. It, re- it relied on contrast to focus for sure. Uh-huh. Just like an autofocus SLR, DSLRs rely on contrast too. Not as much as it did on those older cameras, but it has to see something to focus on. So I also understand that regard that that was actually something that Leica worked on in the 70s, in the early 70s. Correct. Is there any reason why they didn't go with that? Why they sold that off to, what, Minolta? Ego. I read that they, they thought that um, autofocus was for the amateurs. Right. Well, I don't think it was their opinion. I think it was their users' opinions. Like, they were working on the technology, mm-hmm. and their customers were telling them, we have no interest in this at all. There is, uh, I'll give you more homework, Hong. <laughs> in addition to the Kodak Prototypes article, um, check out Kepler's Vault 77 on my site. I have an old article from Modern Photography about the self-focusing camera, uh, early prototypes. You know, there's been a lot of companies that have dabbled in autofocus. Uh, Leica's, it was called the Corifot. C-O-R-R-E-P-H-O-T, 1976. Um, Nippon Kugaku actually released an autofocus lens for the Nikon F. It was an 80 millimeter F4.5. This thing was like a, like a tank. Canon made an autofocus prototype as far back as 1963. And I even found a U.S. patent from 1931 for an autofocus system that used some very primitive version of phase det- or um, contrast detection for a self-focusing camera. So, you know, the technology of autofocus was being chased for quite a while, you know, and Honeywell with the Visitronic, Kodak, I'm sorry, Polaroid with the sonar system. Um, those were, you know, two of the biggest really early successes with, you know, getting, getting that technology to even be manageable. So, you know, if you could, I mean, you could probably go back further than the thirties, but you know, for essentially 40 years, people were just tossing around this idea of autofocus. Like it was some kind of Jetsons futuristic technology. Well, what we've got hung on, maybe, um, you can tell us the best lens, worst camera combination you've shot. Well, this is more in theory as opposed to like actual practice. I really like that Zeiss lens I got from Mike, the Sonar 50 
1.5. And last weekend, not this past week, but the previous weekend at about maybe 3 a.m. in the morning, I decided for whatever reason to take a flyer on a Contax 2A because it was cheap. So I got this and apparently these all had issues and I'm going to have to get this thing restored and cheap little throwaway is not so cheap anymore. <laughs> so, you know. I have to tell you though, if I have a Contax 2A or 3A that's in good working order, it's probably of all of my rangefinders, it's the camera that I go for. Uh, I've got both the 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 Sonar 1.5 and the Sonar 2.50. And I really, other than the fact that, that the the 2 is the, the lighter aluminum construction, they're flawless lenses. I mean, they're just beautiful. They get incredible results. And I, I actually enjoy shooting the Contax 2A more than my uh, my M3. Um, I mean, the M3s, you know, it's, it's, it's got all of those legendary sort of jewel-like, you know, heft to it. The Contax is more just, it's a faster, nimbler camera for me to use. And it, maybe it's just my style, the way that I like to shoot, the way that my hands fit on the camera. Um, but I will pick up that Contax uh, over any rangefinder that I own. I will agree with you, but I'll add one stipulation to that. I think the Contax rangefinders, and I'll group the Kievs in on this too, they are the one camera where your experience varies gr- dramatically based on the condition of the camera. Now, duh, obviously any camera in good condition is going to be better than the same camera in bad condition. But there are many cameras that are still usable if they're not perfect. But the contacts, if you get a nice one, they are, as you described, amazing to use. But a stiff contacts can be practically unusable though. You know, like that is one camera that if you've never handled one that's been properly serviced, you, you truly can't say what it's like to shoot one. Um, whereas, you know, maybe there's some other cameras that are a bit more forgiving, you know, if they're not in top tip top shape. Well, you know, the thing is that with contacts is there are two kinds. There are the kinds that don't work and the kinds that have just been repaired. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. I mean, they're at the age. It's it's yeah. nothing to do with the camera being you know poorly made or anything. It's just age. Yeah. You know the the the, the curtains, the strings on the curtains. The ribbons can come. Uh, they just wear out. But I think though the contacts is there's no in between, like you said. No, it, they either work or they don't work. Right. They, they've either been fixed or they need to be fixed. Right. Yeah. And that's the problem. I think that some people who don't give them a shot um, or, or say they don't like them, probably has never had a chance to use a properly working one. Yeah. So, Hong, did you say you sent yours out then? Or what's the plan? You know, I'm going to send it out tomorrow to uh, Mark Hansen. Mark, Mark Hansen, yeah. yeah. But it's one of those things. I have a, con- a Kia 2A and I like using it. It's just a little rough. And even with this semi, well, and this has some issues, but I can just tell like the gearing, it's much smoother. It's much nicer. And I can only imagine like how nice it must be uh, when this thing actually works properly and it's like properly restored. Yep. I, and, and I will say that to, to back up what Paul said, I did my 2A, I got about a year's worth of work out of it. And then the shutter ribbon snapped. Yeah. And uh, mine, I mean, mine is like a museum piece. It, it came from a collector who bought it as a museum piece. And I was probably the first person to run film through it. It just like, I literally looked like it was unboxed when I got the camera and uh, I ended up sitting up. He was able to tip me off to a friend of his in Germany uh, who was a contacts repair person who had stopped taking commercial work. But uh, because I was friends with the guy that I bought the camera from, he accepted mine. So I had to like sort of surreptitiously send it to Germany as a gift to try to avoid the, 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 the punishing vat that they have yeah, the, the value added tax 
and uh he ended up working on it and he ended up uh he's like do you mind if i do some upgrades and he's he goes i've got a i've got a, a red dial body and i've got some parts here that i think that i can uh he goes if you're if, he goes is this a collector's or a shooter and i was like it's a shooter he goes i'll make it better and oh. <laughs> <laughs> so he kind of frankenstein my my body for me and and sent it back and since then it's like a brand new camera yeah. i mean it's just it's silky it's fast you know the shut the, the you know if you get if you get used to the finger placement so that you use the the dial for focusing but don't put your finger in front of the rangefinder window it's just for me it's very intuitive and very fast and and i i mean i've got a nice kia 4 uh, but like you say, it's like the Kiev four is like a Kalishnikov rifle that, you know, is meant to get sand in it and meant to be sort of tossed in the rucksack and, and still work where the, 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 the Kia or the contacts just feels like a precise instrument. Yeah. When you talk about your camera, Anthony, is that a contacts two or two a, is two it a. the pre-war? Okay. It's the post-war. Post mine's, okay. mine's like a, mine's like a 53, I believe. The A's okay. are always post-war. Right. Now, now, Hong, I exchanged some emails back and forth with Mark Hansen in early November, and if you could do do me a favor, next time you talk to him, uh, mm-hmm. hype up our podcast, because uh, I did oh. ask him if he would want to join us, and he said he wasn't interested, but uh, maybe if we, we, we promote him enough, he'll, he'll join us and want to share some of his secrets with us. He'd be an interesting guy. His yeah. website's very interesting. He's in Wisconsin, which is, I mean, I'm in Indiana, you know, Paul's in, in Ohio, so I mean, it's not that far from us. Right, right, right. It seems like he's got some very strong opinions about different cameras. So he, he would be interesting. Yeah, so that'd be so put in a good word for us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure. Whatever that's worth. I want to hear Dan's contributions because Dan, for anybody who doesn't know Dan Houseman, uh Dan is the, the most prominent American camera collector I know of. I mean he <laughs> he runs the, the American thirty five Facebook page. I mean this guy's got you know, just off the wall, rare American prototypes. He's got the the military olive drab Signet thirty five and the Kodak thirty five. Um, you know, so I, I want to hear because there's a lot of really crazy American cameras. What what would be your nomination for great lens terrible camera to use? The uh, Condrex Bullseye <laughs> and the super uh, the super ones, the, 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 uh, engineers or the machinists were sadists. The, the knurling is so sharp on those that if you use the camera for any period of time, your fingers are raw <laughs> from focusing and, and working the controls. You're absolutely right though. Those lenses are amazing on those things, but they, they are a little bit tricky to use. And, and that's another camera that falls into that. They need, they either, they either don't work or they've recently been repaired kind of category. Yeah, Dan, I was lucky enough that, that it's one of those cameras that as an object of art, it's beautiful, you know, yeah. just that, that design is so stunning and I was lucky enough that, that that Mike sent me one to borrow for a couple of months. And I probably put eh, five, six rolls of film through it. And it's another camera that I will never look at purchasing. No. <laughs> you know, it was like it was fun to shoot once. Um, but it was one of the most unwieldy, both heavy and fragile. It's like it's like it, it feels like it's gonna break just by picking it up, yet it also is a it's just a brick. I got that camera at almost the exact same time as the Fotlander Bessematic. And back then, the Bessematic was like kind of a lower end camera, whereas the Contrax was like near top of the line. I mean, I know they weren't out at the exact same time, but I got 
those two cameras at the same time. And the Bessomatic won me over completely. I love shooting that thing. But the Contrax, I, I liked it. I definitely appreciated the quirkiness of it. The images they make are fantastic. And I'm lucky to have one that's in really good working order. But uh, they are they are definitely uh, a handful to shoot. So, Paul, Contrax. Sure. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, you know, I'll let you know in a couple of days because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm picking up a, looks like I'm going to pick up a kit with a bullseye and a, a special and five lenses. Wow. Um, nice. One lens is an 85 and supposedly it's bound up, but the others seem to focus. My, my history with them has been that the lenses are fantastic, but they do have a tendency to uh, get gummed up yeah. and uh, fail to focus. They also seem to have some element separation problems. I've seen some that uh, didn't look too good when you look at them. I think it's just like the the uh, the Voigtlander Septon from that same era also has you know terrible separation issues. Yep. I have one that's just a be- in beautiful condition, except half of it is uh, a rainbow. I want to follow up on something we talked about in the last last episode, our European edition. We got on the topic of the Perma Special. Uh, and 127 and then Paul had sent me this 46 millimeter bulk film and I have been going nuts with 127 cameras one of them I've always wanted to come back to that I just loaded up with some film is is this Foth Derby the Foth Derby is one of the very few compact 127 cameras that has a focal plane shutter uh, collapsible lens pretty small I mean it's it, in a way it's almost like a, a tiny Leica it's got the kind of rounded body edges and everything I'm lucky that the one I have has the f 2.5 Foth anastigmat lens most of them have a 3.5 uh, these things almost never work and this one does have some pinholes in the curtain so I got to be real careful not to let it touch some bright sunlight but otherwise it does work it's one of those cameras where the shutter speed dial is also the cocking lever so you're you're like turning it and making sure not to let it slip and swing back because then you'll screw up your exposure. But this one fires with like a nice snap. I don't know if you could hear that. Oh. Uh, but this is really nice. And then I have two more. Just, just before just before you move on, Mike, explain that shutter, that shutter release, um, shutter speed dial. I don't think I've come across that. It's I've seen a few cameras that are like this. The Perfex, Dan, which, which Perfex? The first one, the Speed Candid, Candid is like that. Uh, where to cock the shutter is also the shutter speed dial. He's got one right. I mentioned a camera and it's within arm's reach. You have to turn the shutter speed dial all the way till it clicks before the shutter is fully cocked. But if it slips out of your hand, it'll spin all the way back and pull the shutter open while you're trying to cock it, ruining that exposure. <laughs> the Perfex was like that. There's there's a few other cameras that are the same way, okay, but then it's different. It, it's hard to see, but then the shutter release is on the front of the camera, similar to like a Miranda or a Topcon or something. So if you're holding it to your eye, your finger, and I'll have pictures of this on the Instagram, your finger is on the front of the camera, squeezing it towards your face, like most focal, or I'm sorry, like a, like a Practica would be or something. Can you all hear me now? There yeah. you go. All right. Mark's back. Got gremlins in the computer this evening, apparently. So <laughs> That's okay. I'll say here is it. Two, two of what I was going to think of were already done. Um, I was actually going to say that the Metalist was one of my least favorite cameras that you use, even though it has a good lens. Uh, I agree on on the bullseye, but the one that has disappointed me the most recently has been the Roly uh, XF35. It's got a pretty decent sonar lens on it, but I have yet to get a shot to expose properly with that camera. Isn't that the same one, Anthony, that the, the Foltlander version of it, you felt the it exact is, same way? It is, and I totally dislike that camera. Wow. We have, a, know, we have a unanimous there. 
Yeah, I know that there, there's, it's got a bit of a cult reputation. Both of them do on the internet. And I, and as much as I'm a, a Voigtlander fanboy, I, that's the one Voigtlander that I've had and sold and then ended up with another one that was in a lot of like seven cameras that I bought. And I was like, well, I'll give it another shot. Mine works fine. You know, I can get a good exposure. It's just like cheap stamped metal. And the thing just, it feels like a dime store camera. I think that a hit feels better constructed than those cameras. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Cause half the time when I press, when I press the shutter, I feel like I'm going to break something inside the mechanism. And then when it doesn't, doesn't even expose properly, I'm doubly frustrated with that. So um, I, I, to be fair, I should probably give the metalist another shot. I, I borrowed one from Mike for a little bit um, and I probably didn't give it a fair shake. I just, I think I was expecting I don't know what I was expecting a lot more from it somehow. And I think the, the tediousness of actually shooting that camera kind of gotten the way to me of, 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 of the enjoyment of it. But maybe if I actually get my, get another, get one for myself and, and spend some time learning it and, and shooting it, I will, I will come to a different conclusion. My, my guilty pleasure with my medalist is I've got a series seven lens hood for it. That is exactly the right size for one of my um, IR 720 filters that I use painters tape to, tape that filter to the to the front of the the series seven lens hood and uh shoot infrared in it all the time and and these like glorious ektar lens six by nine black and white ir i just i just love working with that camera okay you may have just won me over to try that again that sounds really cool (laughs) (laughs) You, you know that is one camera that I would be really curious to see if somebody could hack it apart and somehow remove the lens and adapt it digitally. I would be curious, but that would be really hard to do. I mean, you'd have to do some really major custom work to make that happen. Uh, but back to um, my 127 uh, infatuation. So I showed you the Foth Derby. This next one came to me by way of Kurt Ingham. This is a loner. Uh, and I'm leaving it in the case because I, I love the way this case works. But this is a Zeiss Icon Calibri. Uh, this is a neat little small camera. Uh, it's got a collapsible lens, so it's a it's a 127 camera. This one has the Zeiss Tessar 5cm f3.5. Uh, but this is a camera that's kind of intended to be used in like portrait mode. So the viewfinder is on the side. You know, it folds up from the back to the front. Then you hold it up to your eye like this, and you get like a tiny little optical viewfinder. I mean, you could still shoot it you know, in landscape orientation, but you could kind of tell that the designers of this camera considered it to be used sort of like a, a snapshot, you know, upright camera, but it's, you know, typical pre-war Zeiss build quality, you know, nickel, the, the, the lens barrel is a polished chrome, uh, really, really nice leather body covering. Um, is the frame size, uh, the frame shape square or it's, it's like, it's three by four. So that would be like three by four. Okay, so it is definitely in portrait then. Yeah, yeah they they didn't use um, that terminology, but it would be like the the half frame one twenty seven. And then the third one, this one I really really like, and I'm super excited to shoot this is the the Topcon Primo Junior. If you just see this camera by its size with no sense of scale, looks like a Roloflex or you know just a regular six by six TLR. But you know if you've ever seen a Yashica forty four or a Baby Roly, I mean this thing is yeah. You know, I mean to give you an idea, it's basically the same size as this the Calibri, you know. But it's a it's a four by four TLR. The, it, what, I, what I think is kind of interesting is it's smaller, but it actually has an f two eight lens. So if this would have been six by six, you know, F two eight usually is the high end 
on those but um i haven't shot this one yet it needs it needs a little bit of cleaning but uh it seems functionally good so i'm i'm really excited so between between the the topcon primo junior the the calibri and the Foth derby um i mean i have more i could choose from but i'm on a 127 kick so we need to have more De december 7th january 27 and uh, july 21st if you use the you know non-american date method you mentioned the yashika 44 i i recently uh before i went back into my home personal lockdown um the 44 uh yashika 44 and they are a fantastic little camera to use i, I love that it's um and you know they they're so stylish too because they came in you know the baby blue gray color and 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 they just then and the case matched and they're, they're just a beautiful little camera so um, if you're interested in getting to 127, they are yeah. a great start. The they came in maroon. Um, I, I want to say there might have even been a third color, the, but the blue and gray are the most common. But there was maroon, maybe green. I can't 100 percent remember. But yeah, they for whatever reason came in a variety of different colors. And and another really cool thing about the Ashika 44, which to be honest with you, this Topcon might be the same way. I just haven't tried it yet. But they're really really easy to adapt to 35 millimeter. Um, a lot of people do, yeah. you know, who don't have access to 127 film like to find ways to roll 35 millimeter into 127 camera because the exposure size is, I mean, you, you expose the sprockets, but you don't lose too much of the image like you might if you put 35 millimeter through 120 camera. But with the Yashica 44, I have instructions on my site. Um, so Hong, if, if you want to read that too, uh, no, I'm just kidding, <laughs> but you can easily fit the entire 35 millimeter cassette into the chamber. You have to use like pennies just to center it. So it doesn't move side to side, but you just, you, you use some kind of spacer washers would work too. You stretch it across the film plane and uh, it attaches the take up spool. No problem. And the only thing you need to do is there's one little roller that you need to remove. It's held on by two screws. So you have to take the roller out. I usually just put the screws back in their hole so you don't lose the screw. And then just make sure you stick that roller somewhere safe in case you wanna put it back to 127 mode. But that's the only modification you need to do the cameras, remove that roller, uh, and then you can shoot 35 millimeter. And uh, well, and you gotta cover, I'm sorry, you gotta cover the red window too, cause that'll screw it up. Does the 44 have the red window as well? Or is it just the 44A? I have the 44 and it because you, you need the red window to get the film started. Okay, because the 44A doesn't have the actual frame um, advance stopping automatically, right. so you have to use the red right. window throughout. So don't don't get the 44A if you're going to adapt to 35 mm They all have it. They, even the 44 yeah. has the red window too. So you have to deal with that. But you have to keep using it for the 44A, which which with oh, no I backing paper is, is a yeah. is a problem with 35 millimeter. Yeah. That's true. I didn't think of that. Or you just guess. I think I mentioned that I had picked up a Comaflex from from Dan Arnold's uh, collection, and uh, the Comaflex one, Comaflex S one twenty seven camera was the SLR, probably the easiest camera in the world to break. Yeah. And uh, of course, this one was broken, and I sent it to John Gilchrist, who's going to going to fix it at Mike's recommendation. Yeah. John was looking forward to it, but then I, I don't know if you know John Gilchrist is the owner of the Packard Shutter Company, yep. and uh, which is not a full-time job, except in November and December. He told me a few days ago, he's just been absolutely hammered with people getting Packard Shutters. So uh, he's going to work on it for me when he gets a chance. 
the cool thing is that I have both lenses for it, the coma lenses that were made for that camera. Yeah, I did an interview with um with John when he shortly after he bought the rights to the company and you know he goes over a little bit of the history of the company the previous owners how he came about it what he plans to do on the company so uh hong you could add that to your list i'm sorry i keep picking on you (laughs) (laughs) no john's a great guy he's in south bend indiana i've met him a couple different times uh and and for he's he hasn't he's was drawn to that coma flex and he took him apart enough times to know how to resolve most of their common issues because paul don't they have a really crazy like way to like cock the shutter like you have yes. to do it in a very specific yeah, order it's, it's extremely easy to break it. yeah and uh if you don't do everything exactly right, right. you break it and that's why none of them work like for you to exactly for you to find a coma flex that somehow still works it'll probably break on its way to you unless <laughs> it's been fixed or you'll break it when you see if it yeah. works yeah Hey, can I ask you, can I ask the group a question? And it's sure. kind of like what you start off with, Mike. Are there any well-regarded cameras that the folks here ended up just not liking or despising despite their reputation? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who, who was, Mike, who, who was the the, uh, the guest we had the last show that uh, he tests he tests crummy cameras because we don't. That's so we Alan don't have Duncan. To. Alan Duncan. Yeah, he runs. Uh, it's it, his URL is Austerity Photo, but he calls it Canny Cameras, and uh, he re- he's reviewed like every Helena. Uh, he picks up a lot of like really low end, you know, plastic, fantastic cameras. He actually did uh, a review of a digital camera that you can actually still buy. It claims to be 16 megapixels, but it, it literally is like a a 1990s era uh, webcam essentially it's all i mean it's it's the most joke of a camera you've ever seen so he likes playing i mean he does reviews of good cameras too but his motto is i review the camera so you don't have to right right, right. but 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 like good the, good the cameras, cameras that yeah. people think are good that you didn't like for whatever reason okay i'll i'll, I'll bite on this one because i'm <laughs> i'm i'm, I'm, a, I'm a, i am a complete heretic when it comes to this if i never pick up another hasselblad 500 cm i'll be I happy i was gonna say that <laughs> It is a camera that I have never gelled with that I know people on this panel that love Hasselblad. Um, I have never, even the, 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 the Hasselblad SWC, which is another camera that I thought I would love that I liked, but didn't fall in love with. Yeah. Um, but the 500 CM, such a classic camera. I just, it was as a fussy camera that I just, I never flowed with the workflow on it. I, and there's just so many other cameras I'd rather use than that, that I just, I don't, I don't care if I ever see one again. Yeah, that's how I feel about the Rolleiflex. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't care for the Rolleiflex at all. And I tried, I've got a T right now that I'm, I'm shooting, trying to make myself like it. And I just simply cannot, I can't get comfortable with it. Do you just not like that style of TLR or is it something specific with Rolleiflex that bugs you? Well, I think it's a TLR, except I did use a Yashica mat and I liked it. Uh, I did. I've never really enjoyed using a Mamiya TL. One camera I recommend you try is the Ricoh Diacord. Um, mm-hmm. And what I really, really like about the Ricoh is it uses paddles on either side of the lens for focusing, which, in my opinion, is infinitely better than what most people have. The Flexoret is the same. Yeah, the Minolta Autocord has a thing at the bottom, which is right. really nice because you tend to support a TLR with one hand on the bottom anyway. 
So with your hand already there, you're, you're it's right in range of like your thumb and your index finger to change the focus instead of having to support the camera, then relocate your hand to the side to turn the knob, then keep supporting it. Like I, I kind of feel like with, with Roloflexes and a lot of the really close Roloflex copies, you feel like you're always moving your hands around depending on what you're trying to do. Whereas both the Minolta Auto Chord and the Ricoh Diacord, they, I think the ergonomics of them are a lot better. In the same vein, I have a Roloflex 2.8A, like the first one with the 2.8 aperture. I actually like using it, but whenever I get the results back, I'm always kind of like, that's eh, so great. Not you know, anywhere close to like what I was expecting, which is Take the camera, put it on a desk, extend it out to minimum focus, and look at it from the side and see if the lens board is parallel to the body. It, no, I, I don't think it's that. I think it's more the lens and the fact that the lens, apparently, they kind of stretch the formula a little bit. Okay. I just have never been very impressed with that. That's why I'm so interested in your autocord. No, I was going to ask it. Is it a Zeiss lens or a Schneider lens on your Rolleiflex? It's a Zeiss lens. It's a Tessar 80 millimeter uh, f2.8. I guess it has reputation for being more of a people camera, person camera, as opposed to a thin camera, just because it has a reputation for softness. That sucks. Eh. <laughs> Yeah. But I was going to say, though, for the benefit of anybody listening, if you ever have a TLR and you can't seem to get sharp pictures out of it, the first thing I always recommend people check is make sure that the lens stand, the, the board is per perfectly parallel. I mean, if it's off even by a hair, because uh, sometimes, you know, if you drop a TLR on the front face, if that ever goes out of whack, you will never get focused image properly on it. Another camera that, that has a lot of sort of cult appeal that just never like spoke to me is the Canonet. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker for a fixed lens, fixed lens rangefinder, and the Canonets. I've never had one that I would pick up again. I got one from the same year. It's not a Canon, but it's one that a lot of people tend to like. Once again, lens envy is um, the Ashika Lynx 14. So this is a fixed lens rangefinder. It has a Yashinon 45 millimeter f1.4 lens. So once again, kind of like that Canon. Uh, F19 I, I talked about earlier you see a classic 60s all metal rangefinder and Yashica made great cameras so I mean you think oh wow they took their greatest camera and put an F14 lens on it it must be amazing right well thing is so heavy it is it is front heavy the the lens barrel blocks like 25% of the viewfinder when you're looking through it cuz it's so huge I don't think it's any sharper than like a Yashica Electro 1.7 or anything. I mean, I won't say it's a terrible camera. It's not the worst thing I've ever shot. But considering on paper, a fixed lens F1.4 rangefinder sounds cool. But in practicality, especially with what people sometimes charge for these, I just don't think they're worth it. There's a few other fixed lens fast, you know, F1.4, F1.5 uh, range finders and I kind of feel like they're all the same way that like what you pay extra to get that extra speed does not result in a better camera. I've got a contentious one the Polaroid SX70 the, the, the thing is engineered beautifully I can understand the concept but god it has so many problems that can go wrong so easily I've never had a good experience with that camera uh, no matter how many films I've tried to put through it. Now, did you ever get to use those back when you could get real Polaroid SX70 film? Or are you only no, talking? No, I did not. The, yeah. I, I, I think that makes a huge difference. I don't know. I actually never shot one back then. Yeah, so I imagine that makes the, the, the big difference. 
But um, it's it's interesting because I've shot you know the, the El Cheapo Polaroid six hundreds, and I fully enjoyed those because they just worked. They just did what they were supposed to do. But the the Sex Seven, you had so much so high hopes for that that it just would spit out you know blank frames. It would get jam, it, all sorts of things, and it could be because of the new film. So um, to be fair, that 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 could make a big difference. Now, did you struggle with the viewfinder? You know, we've talked in the past before about cameras for people with glasses. I found that I really struggled to center my eye correctly with the SX-70 and actually, because that's, it uses some kind of bizarre folding prism. It's not a pentaprism because the camera folds, but how Edwin Land designed the viewfinder on that is like science fiction. I've seen diagrams of how it works and I still don't understand it. But when you hold this camera to your eye, if you are even half of a millimeter off of dead center, you can't yeah. see the whole image. And I just, to me, that I really struggled with that. I've had two of those cameras in the last week, and I had problems with both of them exactly the same. I thought the mirror was actually broken. Yeah. Because I, I could see no image through them. You, you'll get it eventually, but you have to have your eye in the, not only like left, right, up, down, but forward and backward too. Like if you could visualize light rays in space, there's one little dot where your eyeball needs to be to be able to see the full square image through there. But once you do, it's okay. It's just, it takes a lot of patience. My dad was a total gadget freak and he bought an SX-70 probably the month that it was released. And so I grew up around one. It was just the family camera that we always had. And I can't tell you how many hundreds of shots I've, I've run through one. And eventually, of course, he upgraded to whatever the latest greatest was in the late 70s and handed me his and said, do you, do, you, do you want this? And of course I did. And one thing that people don't realize, even back in 1978, 79, I was in high school. It was brutally expensive to shoot that camera. Uh, that SX-70 film was always expensive. Yeah. And uh uh, and then by the time I got to college, I mean, I, I would take it to parties and I, and I had that. And I, and I also had his big shot, uh, which was, you know, the famous Andy Warhol portrait uh, peel apart camera. Uh, and I would take those with me everywhere. Um, and then finally, my SX-70, I just think I wore it out. You know, I think that after 30 years, uh, it just it, it kind of gave up the ghost. Um, so if you have a camera like that, that's been used the way that mine was i could see you'd be very disappointed trying to shoot it uh because you start getting like really like smeary weird uh distorted output from it as the uh the the bar that, that mashes the chemicals together comes out of yeah. alignment and, and you start getting tolerances that are out of out of whack uh they do get quite weird um as far or at least unreliable as far as what your output is but when they were new that camera was the coolest machine uh, and I just, I loved, loved, loved shooting that camera back when I was in high school. Hey, Theo, Theo, what I would say too is try the black and white film. The, the color film, I, I find the colors to be really muddy and kind of garbage. Yeah, yeah I've already come across that, yeah. Um, yeah. The black and white film is beautiful, but uh, the, the color film, it's just, it's nowhere near the, the kind of quality I used to get when my dad used to use his little, you know, the little box X670, one with the green and red buttons. Right, right. So yeah, I've given up on color film. I just use uh, the black and white. You might also try, there's a couple of places here, I don't know about Australia, but there are a couple of people here who hack the SX-70s to use like the 600 film. And that gives you a lot more flexibility with when you can shoot it. It's a, it's a neutral density filter, right? Yeah. It's a yeah. neutral density yeah. filter. No, 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 no. They, what they do is they play around with the, in, with the internals, with like the, uh, the, 
the circuit that that gauges the light and oh. they adjust the timing. And that, that's actually a worthwhile upgrade because you get a lot more flexibility. You can use it in a lot more situations okay. than if you're stuck using like regular 100 ISO film. Yeah, there's a guy in Melbourne that does um, a lot of, he's a Polaroid specialist and he he basically breaks them down and then totally rebuilds these cameras. And I've I've ended up with two SX-70s by, by chance. Um, I think I'll get the, the classic brown leather one redone and the other one, which is, is in, in fairly bad shape, but it actually seems to work. Um, I'll get it redone and, and re-leathered uh, in my favorite football team's colors as well. So, so that way it can, it can actually be a bit trendy yeah. as well. I took mine. I took mine to a uh, a shop that was in Seattle. The guy was had a reputation. There's a place in Brooklyn. The guy in Seattle reputation for being the guy to rebuild your SX70. I hand delivered it to him. He promised to have it back to me within a month. I go back to Florida. And he went out of business, took my camera with him. Oh, oh wow. Was it landcamera.com? It was. If you know anybody that has the ambition to become an SX-70 repair person, I have two boxes full of all the specialty uh, jigs and repair tools for working on those. Oh, wow. I'll put you in contact with him. I think he's actually making his living doing it now. That's cool. So um, that, that should be something that's um, quite handy to know. Back in the... In the one was it must have been like 1979. They had the SE edition where you got coupons where you could send in all your bad exposures and they would send you new film, which was uh, I'm sure they regretted that pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually I sold the camera probably before I got my money's worth out of it. Paul, oh, did you ever shoot the big shot? Uh, I did. My ma, uh, my mother is an artist, and so she had one, and she would use it to do headshots, to do portraits from, and let me let me play with it. It's a neat camera. It is. It's kind of like like a DMV portrait camera, right. you know, and, and it's just got this very primitive shutter on it. It's a clunk. It kind right. of reminds and, me of the shutter in a like a, an Agfa Pioneer. Yeah, uh, and you 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 really have to sort of invade people's personal space with it too. It's uh, absolutely. Like, <laughs> you know, I've always been impressed by the results of the pack film. Like I always thought the colors and everything from the pack film were incredible, and they look the output looked really nice, more so than the, like the integrals. Has anybody ever done besides me Polaroid transfers? Oh yeah, the pack films. Yeah, I love doing that. Dan, you did it too. Yeah. I, I did it, uh, was doing it from four by five and also from the 809, from the eight by 10. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, the peel apart film, uh, what you, the, the process was, uh, there were a lot of different ways to do it. The way I did it was uh, I took Arches cold press watercolor paper and soak it in either weak tea or weak coffee, warm, uh, until it was just damp. And then you would take the, uh, your Polaroid, peel apart film, uh, expose it normally, and then peel it apart. And before you let it dry or completely develop, you press it down on the surface of the paper and roll it with a roller. And then think clean, pure thoughts as you peel it off the paper. <laughs> wow. Uh, if you've done everything right, the emulsion sticks to the watercolor paper. That's so it, it gives you a positive image that's not, that is not reversed. It's, a, it's an actual... Uh, corrected image. And it's really an interesting process. I still got some. They're relatively archival, depending on uh, you know what watercolor paper you're putting them on. 
but I have some that I did 30 years ago that are still good. Yeah. You should I, post them. I did one of the trainings at Polaroid and they, they set us loose in one of their training rooms with the eight by 10 and said, use all you want. Yep. <laughs> and I, was like, I did really? that down at OIP. I would get, uh, I would get my Polaroid rep would come down to Ohio Institute of Photography and she'd bring a couple of cases of 809 with her and we would just go nuts with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just besides shooting commercial setups, we would start doing transfers. You guys should post these examples on the board. I'd love to see them. The emotionless are so cool looking. Well, Liz Potter, who was on our maybe third episode, she's the one that shoots the Noblex out in the Big Bend National Park. Um, she has been doing like a current series right now on Instagram of, of lifts and the results are, are very ethereal. And so I'd highly recommend checking out it's Liz Potter photography on, uh, on Instagram. And uh, so they're like brand new, like she's just it's a series that's a work in progress. So if you want to see an artist who's like coming to terms with, with what it means to try to do those in this, you know, contemporary setting, um, her work's really beautiful. You know, sometimes you hear with like digital photographers, people like to use the term straight out of camera, you know, or, you know, straight off the scanner or something like that, as if a photograph is only valid if, if nothing's been done to it. When in reality, when, whether you're shooting film or digital, you know, the type of film you use, the, the settings your camera has, whether it's on Vivid or not, how you scan it, the settings your software uses, whether you digitize it, there are things that you do to an image multiple times from the moment it's captured to how you consume it. And, you know, if you think of, you know, Photoshop, some people say, well, if you edit a picture with Photoshop, it's no longer the original picture anymore. But I would say that all throughout the course of photography, people have been hacking and modifying, you know, film and and adding filters and doing crazy things. And Polaroid, I think, really opened the door to, you know, the early days of of film hacking, because, you know, whether you're talking about those color transfers, um, I found an article that I've shared in some of my Kepler's Vault series where even even as far back as like the late 50s, people discovered that you could take that early Polaroid film, quickly se- separate it, and take the negative out of it, and then enlarge in it. You know, when you make an instant photo, the photo is only as big as as the print, right? But if you wanted to shoot a Polaroid photo and blow it up to make an eight by ten or something larger. By default, you couldn't do that, but people found ways to separate those peel apart films and actually use bits and pieces of it in ways that they weren't originally intended. And and I think that that speaks to people have been photoshopping, you know, and I say that with air quotes, people have been photoshopping photos since before Photoshop even existed. You know, hell, you could even say uh, the, the, the days of hand coloring black and white film you know, is, is an early form of, you know, once again, photoshopping as, as a verb, uh, you know, photos to just make it how you want, you know, and, and I, I, I've, I've heard of the, the color transfers, Paul, like you mentioned, but the way you described it, it's like, I'm kind of angry because now I want some of that film. Oh, it was a cool process. And it, a lot of people shot it in the camera. Yeah. So it was a one shot deal. I actually used a 405 Polaroid back in the darkroom. Wow. And would print slides, uh, use the, project directly onto the PL part. You know, we were talking about Alan Duncan earlier. Uh, we'll have to get him back on, but I, I think he's, Theo, isn't he the one that it works with the nons, that N-O-N-S? He's done a lot of reviews on those, and yeah. um, he's, he's actually a big fan of it. So that's a, it's a, it's a brand new kind of camera. Uh, it uses, I think, the M42 mount, but I think they make different versions for different mounts, but it uses Instax film. So it's essentially an interchangeable lens SLR Instax camera. 
Um, so I mean, there's just so many cool things that people are doing, you know, with these with these cameras. The, the rumor is they're bringing out a, a square ver- mini square version soon, so which will then take care of the vignetting issues they've been having too. Yeah, cool. Hey, and going back to the uh, Polaroid, Paul and Dan, back in the day with the integral film, did you like the Time Zero film? Did you ever kind of manipulate the film while it was setting? Well, uh, actually, you know, I, uh, Dan, do you know Nancy Rexroth? The name sounds familiar. Nancy and I are all been friends for 40 years. She She's actually a fine art photographer who did a book called Iowa on the Diana camera. And after that, she started doing platinum printing. So she she's she's been around and she does, she did a lot of work, but her her last big project was SX-70 manipulation. And uh, she would take the image and then she would either peel it apart and transfer that image or she would scribe it uh, using a, a, like the scribe you would have on a Kodak autographic camera uh, to break down the colors inside the, the pot itself. Uh, I would just carry a wooden dowel along with me and either you could rub it, you could etch with it, you could, you know, there's all sorts of manipulation. I did that for years. That's what Nancy was doing. And uh, when when they just, it would not work with time zero because the film developed too quickly. She could only only make it work with SX-70, the original SX-70. Because you needed that delay, right? Right. Yeah. We needed the time. To make it work. That's I mean, I've seen some examples where people manipulate it. Like, it almost has like a Van Gogh, like, kind of like a, it, it adds texture to the photo. It, it's really cool looking. Yeah. Yeah. Basquiat and and a lot of the people that were in that late 70s New York downtown scene were, were doing a lot of SX7 manipulation like that. Miles Lieback jumped in just a few minutes ago. Hey, Miles, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, nice and cold here in Minneapolis, though. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's cold, I think, everywhere here, except by Theo. Well, and Anthony, because his lawn's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was, 80, it was 83 today. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, rub it in. Yeah, I think we're in the mid-30s Celsius here. So we'll, we'll throw this out to Miles. Uh, earlier in the episode, we've been discussing everybody in the room. Uh, give us an example of a camera you've shot that has a great lens, mm-hmm. but the camera itself was either terrible or just you just didn't like it at all, but it, you loved the lens. I had a Canon QL17. Love the lens, but it fell. It just slowly fell apart. The strap lugs and yeah. the the shutter retainer ring, and I had like like. It's funny you mention that because we've talked about Canon at rangefinders, and uh, my nomination was a Canon um, at the, one of the F19 autofocus point and shoot cameras. The um, I already forgot what it's called, but that's funny. You're the third person to mention Canon, so we're picking on Canon this time. We should have a Canon episode next week to try and redeem the brand. It might be one that we're not picking on them. Yeah, yeah, we're not picking enough. So real quick, Anthony, you still have my Canon Flex. What's what's the final verdict on it? Like, did did you walk away from it saying I liked it? Is it you're neutral on it or what? Neutral. I like the lens. Um, you know, I got decent results, but it just wasn't a camera. I mean, I'd rather shoot my Topcon than that. Yeah. What'd you think of the bottom line film advance? Well, you know, the I was just shooting my uh, Erat DN. The K and or A and K, yeah, uh, and it has that. And I was also shooting my uh, Retina Reflex Three, which also has the bottom winder. So I mean, it was just that kind of felt natural to me. That didn't, yeah. it, it didn't, didn't impress you at all. Me. Okay, yeah. All right, I was just curious. It's heavy. It is heavy. Yeah, it's a really heavy camera. Can I talk about the one that got away this week? Sure. 
I have been on a super iconic kick and I've got my 1930s uh, 645. Then I've got a, a, a late 36 by six, and then a post-war six by six. And then I picked up a, a 1940 six by nine that I'm absolutely in love with. And so the last one on my radar is the one that shoots 616 film uh, that does the uh, six by 11, almost a uh, panoramic camera. And I was tracking it on eBay and I've been on such a lucky streak coming up with these super icontas that i really didn't think about what that camera was uh, the, the the value of that camera was and i thought oh i'm not gonna go another 20 dollars on that camera well i would and think that something that shoots 616 which is fairly dead end there wouldn't be a lot of appeal or interest in it right I, and i yeah this camera was coming from london uh so the shipping was kind of high on it and uh you know i thought oh if i can get this thing for under 150 shipped i'll go for it and I, and I should have been more aggressive because it turns out that it's actually a very rare camera. Uh, and I let it slip through my fingers. And now I don't think I'll ever see one that was in this good of a shape. And, and then, of course, I later realized that I have an entire bag of 616 films sitting here at the house. <laughs> uh, and and it's just like, oh, that was one that was meant, meant for me. And I just let it go because I was just being a cheapskate and thinking I'd get away with it uh and just it's just i should have been more aggressive on the bidding and there you've got a roll of 70 millimeter film 70 millimeter this is kodak that i've got spools and backing yeah. paper so 70 millimeter is the exact di uh, thickness of 616 and 116 film now this oh. is this is double perforated so the perforations will show in the exposed image that's okay but, i'll just have more of a pano well yeah you could either if you like perforations in your film voila they're already there but or you if you just crop those out you can in essence have um on a, a 616 the image would be 11 centimeters wide and if you yep. just crop it a little bit you could get like maybe a 6 by 11 mild pano medium format using this kind of film and although this is expired 1985 um you could probably find i think they made 70 millimeter bulk a lot later than this but you're going to have a much easier time finding film like this to reload on a 616 or a 116 spool than actual 616 or 116 film. But if anybody out there in Camerosity land has a super iconic 616. Or if you recently just bought one on eBay, let Anthony know. <laughs> He's pissed. <laughs> Apparently the buyer was in Germany. But okay. uh, but yeah, it's, a, it's one that I just, I didn't even think about how rarely they show up for sale. I think that like, if you look at, at, at the sales history on, e on eBay, it was like, two in the last year come up for sale i was monitoring just to, to scratch my 127 itch i keep talking about but a camera called an Irwin super tri-reflex dan have you ever heard of one of these before it's a it's an american made they look like they're built out of sardine cans it's a tlr uh it was made by the Irwin camera company i think they were in new york um it's a t it's a twin lens camera but this thing i thought you know it might be a little affordable. I was willing to, you know, give it a shot on it, but it sold for I think like three hundred and seventy-three dollars oh, for this really? for this tiny little one twenty-seven camera. I was like, oh, never mind about that. I'm trying to think if I have one. It sounds familiar. Irwin made a bunch of different cameras. They all. I, I actually legitimately think the guy who formed the company worked at a sardine factory. So <laughs> the the cameras <laughs> resembling sardine cans is is totally. There's a reason for that. It's not like a coincidence. Like they made cameras out of sardine cans. But the Super Tri Reflex, I mean, it it 
it, it looks like a legit TLR with a waist level finder, you know, true, true fo full focusing and everything like that. But I was kind of hoping to get something like that that was a little quirky, a little different than the 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 four by four TLRs. Sounds like a like a variation of a Tessina. Kinda, yeah, yeah. Or I did um, KW did um, a one twenty seven TLR. Mike Novak let me borrow. Uh, it was one of the pilot cameras. It was really, really neat. But you know, it's it shoots um, like like the Foth Derby does. It shoots four by three, so it's a TLR that shoots rectangular images. So you get sixteen shots out of one roll of film. Well, we've hit that point in the show uh, where we probably should start wrapping it up to maintain some semblance of an editable, ed editable show. As always, I want to thank everybody who joined us. Hong, uh, you've been on before. I mean, in fact, everybody here today has been on the show before. So uh, I love having repeat people come back in. You know, you guys know how the format works. Uh, I do like new people too, but it's always fun to have different people jump in because, like I say, every single episode, we have no idea where these discussions would go. Uh, the idea of great lens, bad camera was just the thing we thought up like, you know, really, really quickly. And it turned out to, to provide fodder where we, we ran the gamut of cameras from Polaroids all the way to, to Contraxes. So uh, does anybody else have any new acquisitions or any questions they want to throw before we, we go? I'll just throw it out there. I uh, got inspired and got the uh, Nikonos 2 with the 35 millimeter uh, 2.5. So <clears throat> I'm looking to take it out on a trip and do a little bit of snorkeling with it and uh, testing it out. So wish me luck underwater. And you probably know this, but in case you don't or anybody doesn't know, not every Nikonos lens can be used above water. Some of them very specifically only work underwater, but that lens works above uh, on land and underwater. And optically, it is identical to the Nikon rangefinder 35mm f2.5, which is a great lens. I mean, as a land camera, the Nikonos 2, you will find those with that lens on it for way cheaper than you will ever find that lens in Nikon rangefinder mount. And it's optically the same. And there's one longer lens that Nikonos made, or they made for the Nikonos, that's only usable on the surface that you can't take underwater. That's true, right. So it's waterproof. It's water resistant. So you can do it in like the rain or a jungle or something, but it doesn't, right. you can't submerge it. But uh, yeah, if you take it underwater, you're you're gonna screw up your camera. <laughs> yes, I sent it off to a repairman that uh, can do uh, pressure testing for me on it. So before I take awesome. it underwater. <laughs> Dan, did I see you reach back and grab something? Um, yeah, a couple things. I think I already posted this one in the 35 group, but I finally picked up a 153 millimeter uh, for the extra. Wow. That's the longest one they ever made, right? Well, in theory, there somewhere out there, there's a prototype of, of something longer. The 254? Maybe. The 253, uh, I think. Yeah, but this is, uh, is the 153. I think they made, estimates are they only made about 400. Wow. Uh, of those. And then the other thing I picked up, which is also will fit on an Actra, is a Zeiss. 1935, uh, which was actually, you know, the uh, Kodak, I think, you know, looking for other markets developed. Wait, wait, wait. That's a Zeiss lens for the Ektra? Well, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of such a thing. Kodak found a secondary market for the Ektra lenses that they had built, selling them into the television market. Oh, okay. I don't know if you can read that. No. Uh, but that's a, uh, a television Ektanon. Okay. Um, which is, that's a 135. And here's the extra 135. Same okay. mount, 
difference is there's no uh, rangefinder couple. Okay. Uh, and I don't know. I, I one of the accessories I don't have is the ground glass back. But I suppose I could just throw some, you know, piece of ground glass on the back and check if the focus distance is the same. But this was this Zeiss 190. It's the extra mount, no rangefinder couple, but intended for a television wow. camera. Well, so that is cool. Uh, I'm curious to see what uh, what I can do with this one. Um, Very cool. That's really neat. That's neater than anything I've gotten. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah, I picked this one up shortly before Christmas. I went down to the Cam Museum in Stanton, Virginia, and stopped by a um, uh, market down there. And it's the uh, the Pureflecta Two, made by Welty, and sold here, or maybe Welta, and sold here in the U.S. by Peerless Camera. Peerless, yep. Uh, so I'm uh, in the process of cleaning it up, and it seems to function properly. So looking forward to running some film through Very it. Cool. Mark loaned me his Grayflex 22, and I just finished a roll on that and developed the pictures a couple days ago. And uh, um, it's spec for spec, very similar to the Pure Flecta. Uh, and I got some pretty neat images from it, so I would imagine you would too. Hope so. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, everybody. You have a great rest of the week. This is our first episode of the year. Uh, we're sticking to an episode every other week. So we will be back recording episode 18 on Monday, January 24th. Unless you're Theo, then it's going to be Tuesday, the 25th. Uh, we're going to do it at our regular time. We had a great response to our European episode last or two weeks ago, so we will definitely do that again, but um, we'll have to find a, a time where that works. So we'll probably do that you know, a couple times a year. Uh, if we can be compelled, maybe we'll even consider some other time zones, but um, it's really hard to find you know, one that works for, for everybody. But uh, uh, thank you guys all again for joining, and everybody have a great rest of, of the week. For those of you in colder climates like where I'm at, stay warm. For those of you who are not, then... <laughs> good night. All right, good night, everybody. Good night, thanks. Good night. Mark is doing sign language right now. Um, it looks like he's uh, being held hostage, possibly, down there. So we'll come back to Mark a little bit later.